Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, thank you so much for joining me for another edition of Felony Friday here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Now, this show began in January with the intent of exposing brokenness in the criminal justice system. Now, the format of the show does vary from week to week, but the purpose is consistent each and every single week. On Felony Friday, we will shine a light on areas of the criminal justice system that the mainstream media simply ignores, that they don't pay attention to. And today's show does that in a big way. On today's show, I'm going to be interviewing James Trainum. James is a retired homicide detective who is speaking and writing about the vast injustice of false confessions and the uncivilized interrogation techniques utilized by police departments across the country. Now, before I introduce my guest, I do want to take two quick notes. This is episode number 44 of Felony Friday. So that means that you can find the show notes page with links and notes for everything that we're going to talk about at lionsofliberty.com slash FF44. Second, if you haven't yet visited igniteliberty.us to order your Make Liberty Great Again hat or shirt, please consider doing so today. Now, wearing a Make Liberty Great Again shirt or hat, it's a great way to start a conversation to talk about the ideas of liberty. You can get your Make Liberty Great Again hat or shirt by visiting igniteliberty.us. And when you do so, be sure to enter the code FELONY for 25% off of all Make Liberty Great Again hats. That's right. All Make Liberty Great Again hats are 25% off if you just enter the promo code FELONY at checkout. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy today's show. My guest today is former Washington, D.C. homicide detective James Trainum. James spent 17 years in homicide for the Metropolitan Police Department before retiring in 2010. He was the lead detective on the high-profile Starbucks triple murder in Georgetown that took place in 1997, which he eventually helped to solve in 1999. Now, James started his career as a firefighter and paramedic before becoming a police officer. And during his early years in law enforcement, James worked various different job functions, including patrols, some undercover work, and started out down the investigation path, working some burglary investigations. Then he moved on into the homicide division, and he recently published a book titled How the Police Generate False Confessions, an Inside Look at Interrogation Room. So that's what we're going to be focused on for the most part, false confessions. James, welcome to Felony Friday. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. It's great to have you here, James. And before we get into talking about false confessions and really the injustice that are false confessions, this is uh, the Felony Friday show on the Alliance of Liberty podcast. And that's what we focus on every Friday on this show. We want to shine a light on a different aspect of the criminal justice system that is broken, that needs attention and needs to be fixed. But before we dive into false confessions, I just want our audience to get to know you a little bit better. So maybe if you could start out telling maybe what led you to wanting to become a police officer. Actually, I was uh, working, like you said, as a firefighter paramedic, and I got bored. (laughs) That's one story. The other story is I always wanted to be a police officer from a young age. And this was an opportunity. A D.C. police was hiring at the time. 
And I was at that phase in my life where I was ready to make a change in my careers. And I started off just like every other officer did, walking a footbeat from seven at night to three in the morning. And actually, I had a great time doing that. That was a lot of fun. So you're, you're starting out your early career in law enforcement, working patrols, walking the footbeat. What kind of led you towards becoming a homicide detective? Well, I really wanted to be an investigator. And so I began getting into more of the investigative uh, units. I was working a plainclothes auto theft unit for a while. I uh, then became a member of what they call the Repeat Offender Project. And that was a unit that we tried to identify those people who were committing five or more part one offenses per week, like robberies, burglaries, things like that. And then we would uh, focus our attention on them. I specialized at that point in burglars and fencing operations, which led me to become a district detective working out of the 5th District and working on burglary cases, which I absolutely loved. But unfortunately for me, in 1993, I I was working a burglary case and solved a high-profile murder case by accident. So they decided to drag me down to homicide, kicking and screaming, and I spent the rest of my career down there. Can you just give a little detail on how that happened, some background on how you stumbled into solving a high-profile murder case? Sure. Uh, What had happened was this woman by the name of Abby McCloskey was walking home when she was snatched at the mouth of an alley, dragged down to the center of the alley where she was beat to death and uh, sexually assaulted. It was outside of of my district, actually, where I was working. But the next day, there was an elderly woman who was sitting in her living room, and her daughter-in-law had just walked out the front door to go to the store. And a man walked in and just began to pound on her to the point where she actually lost an eye. He then began to ransack the room. And when her son heard what was going on, he was upstairs. He ran down, and he chased the guy away. Well, fortunately for us, the suspect left a gym bag behind that contained his halfway house ID, which is commonly called a clue. So I was able to get an arrest warrant for him. He was in a halfway house. I called the halfway house, got him locked down. But the halfway house called me back and they said he really made an interesting phone call. He called somebody and said, make sure John gets the bag. So I was wondering who John was and what the bag was. So I went by his mother's house. And I was going to interview his mother, and it turns out that his grandmother was there at the time, and I was explaining to her why he was arrested, and I just made a comment, hey, where's that bag he left for John? And she says, it's right here. And so she picks up a plastic bag and puts it in my lap, and there's a gun inside. (laughs) At that point, his mom came in, and uh, I was talking to her, explaining why he was arrested, And she asked me a very odd question. She asked me about the race of the woman that he allegedly attacked. And I asked her why. I thought that was a strange question. And she said that he had real issues with, because of his background, some psychological issues with light-skinned black women and and white women. And just then I realized that he was two blocks away from where Abby McCloskey had been killed. So I just typed up this memo, sent it to Homicide, And it turned out that his fingerprints, they did a manual comparison of his fingerprints to some of the evidence on the crime scene. And it was him. So that was that. So that was your start as a homicide detective. That was my start as a homicide detective. I worked that case pretty much 
myself because they kind of gave it to me at that point. And I worked active homicide cases, active meaning cases that had just occurred for several years until uh, the Starbucks case came along. And then after that, I was moved to a cold case unit where I actually supervised a group of interns. We were doing a comprehensive review of homicide cases going back as far as we could, trying to find ones that fell through the cracks, that sort of thing. Obviously, I want to have you on to talk about your book and to talk about false confessions. And I first heard of you in a Washington Post article that was talking about you and talking about your book. And in that article, it talked about a case where actually, as a detective, you had, through questioning, caused a, uh, a suspect to give a false confession. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and also talk about maybe how, if that was something that led you down this path to looking into false confessions and into writing this book. Well, absolutely. That's what kicked it all off. I received the same training as everybody else. I was basically taught that innocent people don't confess unless they're being tortured or unless they're mentally ill. And we had a case where we identified a suspect based on what we thought was good forensic evidence that turned out not to be so good. But I used standard interrogation tactics that we had been trained in that would pass muster in any court in the country. And the thing is, I'm not a yeller or a screamer. I'm a very low-key type of, of interviewer. But somehow, we convinced this woman that it was in her best interest to confess to a crime that it turns out that she had nothing to do with. What had happened was we were doing the follow-up on her uh, confession information, and we found her alibi. And then we went back and checked on the original evidence. We found out that the analysis was faulty. But not only was I able to get her or convince her that it, you know, to confess to a crime that she didn't commit, somehow she had all of these details that anybody who wasn't there should not have known. And so I really wanted to find out what happened, what I did wrong, and just you know, try to make sure that it didn't happen again. So I started looking at all the research, started to realize some of the things that I did do wrong, not only how the tactics that were taught can to manipulate a person to believing that it's in their best interest to confess to a crime, whether they did it or not, but how we unintentionally then provide that person with the information that they need to create a acceptable and believable confession. And I decided that I could use that as a teaching example to help my coworkers and other people avoid the same mistakes that I did. So that's what I started to do. It then kind of mushroomed from that point. I began to write more, do more presentations. And I was contacted by a publisher who wanted me to write a book for the general public to take all that research and stuff, all that academic stuff, and try to make it more entertaining, I guess, <laughs> or more readable. And I hope I did that in my book. Is this the first book that you've written? It is the first book that I've written. I've written some articles and all of that. But what I wanted to do was show people that this is something that could happen to anybody. That, you know, everybody thinks, oh, no, I would never, ever confess to a crime that I didn't do. But, yeah, you would. And under the right circumstances, you would. And I have an imaginary case study in there where I kind of show how that could happen. But I also follow the case of the Norfolk Four. For those of you who don't know it, it's four sailors who falsely confessed to raping and murdering a woman down in Norfolk, Virginia. 
And I mean, they were recently exonerated just within the last couple of weeks. But, you know, these are sailors. These are, are most of them were of about like average intelligence, uh, no mental health history. And yet they were still convinced to confess to this very horrific crime. And they spent quite a few years in jail. But the real tragedy is, is that this goes well beyond suspects falsely confessing to crimes. Because what I found was that, you know, if we have a witness who we believe is holding back, or we have a victim or an informant, we'll go into interrogation mode. And we'll use the same interrogation tactics that have been shown to produce false confessions on witnesses. And we'll also feed the witness information. And bad witnesses and bad informants cause many more wrongful convictions than false confessions do. So, James, as you were saying before, uh, the thing about false confessions and the thing that I have trouble understanding is is how someone could confess to a crime that they didn't commit. And, you know, I, I did have on a, a previous episode, Alan Hirsch, that was back in episode 23, where he talked a lot about false confessions and he is an expert witness in false confessions. But it's still something that's really hard for me to wrap my mind around. And, and in your book, I thought it was very helpful. You broke it down into three different types of confessions and statements. The three different types, three different forms that they come in. One, either a, a voluntary confession or statement. And I guess the driver for that would be like fame or, or to uh, protect someone else. Next one would be complaint confessions and statements. This is where the investigator, I guess, gets the suspect to believe the truth. And the third would be the internalized confessions and statements. And that's where I guess the the interrogation person, you know, comes to believe that they committed the crime. Yeah. I think I said that right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess expand on those if you can. And which one of the three of those is, is most common from your research? Okay. Well, with the voluntary false confessions, one of the things that I included in there are false guilty pleas. When somebody is not guilty and yet they decided that in order to avoid the long prison sentence that they were going to plead guilty to a crime and get a break from the government. And the same dynamics take place in a false guilty plea as a false confession, because the person is being faced with an inevitable consequence, and the only way to get out of it or minimize it is to say what the government wants you to say. The second one is the coerced one. It's when you know in the interrogation room, you know what you're saying is wrong. It, you know that it's a false confession, but you've been manipulated by the interrogation process to believe that you're stuck. You're going to be convicted. You're going to go to jail. It's a horrible mistake, but there's no way out of it. Your only option is to help the detective and tell them what they want to hear in order to reduce your jail sentence, get help, or minimize the impact. But the internalized one, and that's the most common right there, the internalized one is really interesting. It's when we as detectives are allowed to lie about the evidence during the interrogation. We're allowed to tell you that, yeah, somebody's in the other room saying that you did it, that we got three eyewitnesses who put you there, that all this other stuff, we're allowed to lie. And what that does with some people, especially people who may have some mental health issues and all of that, but your average person is it may lead you to doubt your memory. And then you might start thinking, well, oh my God, maybe... I blacked out 
or maybe, you know, or maybe I did something that was so horrific that I blocked it out of my memory. And, you know, people actually begin to believe that they committed the crime because here you have an authority figure telling you that there is that they have positive proof that you did it and they're convinced that you did it. And, you know, maybe you did black out or maybe you just don't remember. So, like I said, for at least a brief period of time, if not longer, that person actually believes that they might have committed the crime. When we talk about disproving false confessions, um, I know in, in your book you talk about, I forget the name of the case exactly, but it was, it was I think, a, a rape in Central Park. And you mentioned that even though that it's been proven that this individual did not commit this rape, I think they're still in jail. And I think you mentioned even that, that, that Donald Trump still thinks this person <laughs> is guilty because they confess. Well, actually, they're out of jail. They've been exonerated. You know, the real perpetrator's been caught. His DNA matched the DNA on the crime scene. He confessed that he did it alone. However, you know, these guys still carry around the stigma that a lot of people still believe that they committed the crime. In the Norfolk Four case, that's an identical case. These guys had confessed. Their DNA did not come back to the DNA on the crime scene. This other guy, Omar uh, Ballard, he writes a letter to his girlfriend, and he's bragging about having committed the crime. And the girlfriend turns the letter over to the police. They go to talk to Omar. And within a matter of minutes, where it took hours for these other guys to confess, within a matter of minutes, Omar says, yep, I did it. And I did it alone. And the cops asked Omar, did you know these guys at all? And he goes, I have no clue who they are. And in fact, they're a bunch of idiots for confessing. Well, it turns out that it was Omar's DNA all over the crime scene. But the investigators and the prosecutor had so much invested in this case and in the belief that these guys were guilty simply because they confessed that they went back to Omar and pretty much gave him a deal that he couldn't turn down. You know, you know, look, Omar, you're facing the death penalty. We know that you did it with these guys. So if you want to escape the death penalty, then you kind of have to help us out. And Omar goes, yeah, my bad. You're right. Uh, I was just walking down the street and these guys come out of the apartment building and they say, let's go rape this woman. And I said, OK, which was ridiculous. But like I said, that's what shows the power of a confession, that it trumps all other reasoning out there. And the confession that these guys gave was totally inconsistent with the crime scene. It was inconsistent with each other's confessions and all of that. But because they said, I did it, any doubt whatsoever was wiped away. Is that sort of a good example of what you were talking about in your book when you talk about the difference between evidence-based and suspect-based investigations where investigators can get like almost tunnel vision, I think you said in the book was the wording, and they get married into a theory where they have to make everything fit around that. Can you expand on what the difference between evidence-based and and suspect-based is as well? Sure. Well, first off, we all fall victim to tunnel vision in our lives. It's something that it's hard to control. It's hard to know that when you're in there. But it's really dangerous when it happens in an investigation. When the investigation first begins, it's typically evidence-based. You're gathering evidence. You're trying to see where the evidence leads you. And you're trying to see where that information is going to take you. The danger is, is when you develop a theory too soon and you latch on to a suspect too soon, and it becomes suspect-based. Then typically what happens is you begin to gather evidence 
that strengthens your case against that suspect. And the danger of that is tunnel vision comes into play. Then you start to look at evidence in the most guilt-presumptive light for that suspect. And you have a tendency to ignore evidence that might contradict your theory or might lead you in a different direction. It's really the number one cause of uh, wrongful convictions is basically tunnel vision and verification bias. So what would be, and I do want to talk more about a little bit later in the interview about solutions, but just talking about just that, that one aspect of it, what are some ways that in your experience that something like that could be mitigated? If one of the investigators is getting tunnel vision, is there, should there be you know, more checks and balances or something like that? Well, sure. And that's one of the things that is a problem with the way that we typically do investigations here in the U.S. is that there's a lead investigator and people have a tendency not to challenge his work where it's really good to have a, a devil's advocate, somebody who's there to always look for alternative explanations to evidence, to always try to poke holes in your case. Now, in the UK, they actually have a process, especially with major investigations, where you document all your evidence, all your information as it's coming in. And once you reach a decision point, like, okay, we're not going to start focusing in on this person as a suspect, you pretty much have to justify why you're doing that. Three or four weeks later, what you do is a supervisor or yourself will go back and look at that original decision. And based on the new information that's coming in, was that a good decision or was it not? And should you modify that decision based on the new information? It's not as complex as it sounds, but what it's doing is it's making you constantly rethink your old decisions and reevaluate them rather than become locked into them and uh, trying to advance them at all costs. So you talk about, uh, you know, following the book of investigations, of there being a, uh, I guess, a, a procedure or a, you know, a way that investigations are done in this country. Is there a consistent book that is used throughout the United States that all investigators are using when they are uh, interrogating a, a witness or interviewing a uh, suspect, interrogating a suspect? No, there really isn't. And in fact, um, just about anybody who wants to can start up an interrogation school or a class here in the U.S. There's a lot of people who absolutely go through no formal training whatsoever. However, pretty much the standard training that is out there is the training that is offered by what is called the Reed Institute. And they teach what is commonly known as a read technique. And uh, that's been the standard since the 40s. And just about every interrogation school that's out there teaches some form of the read technique. And so in the U.S., that's pretty much the standard. But everybody has their own variation of it. So based on your experience and based on uh, procedure that Reed teaches, can you kind of explain how, I guess, from everything from the setup of a room all the way through maybe the different phases of your questioning, can you kind of take us through, you know, put yourself back <laughs> in uh, being a homicide detective. If you come across a suspect that you think all the evidence points to them and you're trying to get a confession, what does that look like when you bring them in for questioning? Okay, well, first off, the interrogation process is supposed to be broken into two pieces. One is supposed to be the interview, and it's supposed to be the non-accusatory part where you're gathering information. Now, 
what the interrogation schools teach is that it's during this phase that you're supposed to be making your absolute final decision as to whether or not this guy's lying to you and how likely it is that they committed the crime. And they use these techniques. Everybody's taught these various behavioral analysis techniques, such as, you know, observing body language or the way the person responds to certain questions and all that sort of stuff. Now, the interrogation schools will teach that if you use these techniques, you're able to determine whether or not somebody's lying about 80 some, if not higher percentage of the time. The problem with that is that it's totally bogus. It's pseudoscience. It's not based on any science at all. And uh, the, let's say, reliable studies that are out there pretty much shows that it's like chance, 50-50, like tossing a coin. Where does that 80% number come from? Is that just a a random number? I think it's from whatever internal study they've created, and it's not supported by the other research that's out there. Okay. But then, okay, I've now decided that you're guilty. And so I'm going to switch to the interrogation mode. And the interrogation is an accusatory process. What I'm going to do is where during the interview, you're going to be doing most of the talking as the person I'm trying to get information from. In the interrogation, I'm going to be doing most of the talking. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to take a break. I'm going to walk out of the room. It's going to be a very, talking about the room, I forgot to mention that. It's typically a small windowless room that doesn't have any clocks in it or any other distractions whatsoever. Probably a table and a couple of chairs. Now, I'm not supposed to have the table between you and me because I don't want that barrier between us. So I leave you in the room. I walk out, let you sit there for 10, 15, 20 minutes to kind of think about the error of your ways and help increase your anxiety. And then I'll come back in. And sometimes I'll come back in carrying a folder, maybe a bunch of videotapes. Now, the folder could just be empty paper, but I'm trying to show you or kind of bluff you with, I got all this investigative material here. This is a really serious case and we have all this evidence. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to stand over top of you and I'm going to tell you, our investigation has proven that you're the person who committed this crime. There is no doubt about it whatsoever. We have all the evidence. I don't want to hear anything from you whatsoever because nothing you will say can change my mind. All I want to know is why. So I then will begin to give you excuses as to why you may have committed that crime. And these are called themes. Maybe you did it because, you know, the boss left the money out in the open, anybody would have been tempted, that sort of thing. So I'm giving you different themes. Now, these themes are supposed to have a psychological or moral justification, not any kind of hint of leniency. But way too often, if you watch interrogations on YouTube, you'll see the detectives suggesting themes that have a leniency component, such as, look, if he came at you, it was self-defense, right? Right? If he came at you, but that's what you got to say. If I run out of one, if you don't bite on one theme, I'm going to try another and then another. There's a book out there that they published that actually has 2,000 different themes for all different types of crime. I'm never going to run out of a theme. I'm going to keep throwing them at you. And as I'm doing that, you're going to try to stop me and you're going to try to deny. Well, I'm going to block that denial. No, no, no. Just wait. 
hold on a second. Did you do it because? Did you do it because? I can lie about evidence. I can put in a time constraint such as, look, this is your one chance to you know, come clean with this and help me understand why you did this. Did you do it because? Did you do it because it was at the spur of the moment or was it something that was planned? That sort of thing. So as I continue with that, I'm going to get you to the point where I think that you're ready for me to go in for the kill. And I'm going to propose to you the alternative question. And the alternative question, both answers are bad, but one answer is worse than the other. Let's say that you're accused of, of taking money from a cash register. The alternative question might be something like this. Look, we know you're guilty. We know that you took the money from the cash register. Now, you either stole that money because you're a low-life dope fiend who doesn't care about anybody. And if that's the case, I'm walking out of here. I've had it with you. Or did you take the money because it was lying out there in the open? Anybody would have been tempted to take the money. You had all these bills that you had to pay, and you were going to pay it back anyway. That's the case, wasn't it? Wasn't that the case? Because if it wasn't the case, it was the other. And I'm leaving. So which one is it? I know it was the second one, right? And so everything, even though detectives will tell you, I interrogate people to get to the truth. Think about that process. What am I trying to do? I'm trying to get to the truth as I perceive it to be, that you're guilty and that I'm trying to get you to admit to this crime. So I'm looking for a confession. All this stuff about looking for the truth it is bogus. I'm looking for a confession to what I think is the truth. So once you get the admission, then that's when I'm supposed to start getting the details from you that make up the confession right there. And so that's basically how your typical interrogation goes. So it's really almost like a, a negotiation. And as you said, it's the detective or the interrogator is trying to get to a truth that they've already predetermined. It's just a matter of negotiating the path there. That's correct. And the thing is, is I'm getting you to make an admission to what I know is not the truth. And so now I got to get you to come off up off of that and tell me uh, what I want to hear. Now, the thing about this process, it's it's very, very effective. It works. It works too well because, like I said, it creates this environment where even the innocent person could be compelled to say, oh, my God, I need to tell this guy, you know, what he wants to hear because that's the only way that he's going to help me and that I can get out from under this. And so that's you know, pretty much like I said, people confess, you know, both truthfully and untruthfully when they're faced with inevitable consequences and they're trying to receive some kind of benefit. The problem then becomes for the innocent person. Okay, he needs me to confess, but what do I confess to? How do I come up with a narrative that he's going to believe? And that's when, during the interrogation process, we start to unintentionally feed them little bits and pieces of information. Sometimes it's through leading questions. And, you know, a leading question is a question that has some information about the answer in the question, such as, Let's say that we're looking at a uh, murder that occurred during a burglary and the person got in through the, the uh, back door. If I'm the detective, I'm going, okay, tell me how you got in, the door or the window. I've given you options there. 
and you can guess one or the other. Or I could say something like, didn't you go in through the back door? That's another leading form of question. My response to your answer is going to give you clues. Let's say that I ask you the leading question. Okay, how'd you get in? The door or the window? And you go, the window? And I go, the window? Well, I've just told you that that's wrong. And then I'll ask you a few minutes later, okay, how'd you get in again? Or a more obvious one that you see a lot is if you guess wrong, I'm going to call you a liar. But if you guess right, I'm going to say, okay, now we're making progress. So really the interrogation becomes a game of 20 questions where you as a suspect, desperate to get that information to make me believe this narrative, you're picking up little clues here and there and you're compiling them into a story that we're actually working together to create. And that's the beauty of videotapes, because before videotape, we never saw this process happening. But with videotape, if you watch and you break down the confession, and you're seeing, okay, who's saying what first, then you're able to tell who's telling the story. And if you have a bad confession, then you're gonna see that it's the detective telling the story, helping the suspect shape it, and then getting the suspect to adopt it as their own. So do you think that there's some instances with interrogators that they know full well that this person could not be responsible for the crime, could not be an actual suspect, but yet they proceed anyway? That would be a truly rogue cop. That's somebody who is is actually committing a criminal act and should be in jail. So most of the times, these interrogators, they believe they're doing the right thing. They believe they're doing the right thing. They believe that they have the right suspect. They're convinced. And that's where the tunnel vision comes in. Because, okay, for some reason, this person isn't telling me details about the crime that they should know. Why are they not able to tell me those details? Ah, well, it has to be because they're trying to protect somebody. Or it has to be because... They're trying to minimize their involvement, not they're not telling me these things because one, they weren't there and two, I haven't fed them to them to begin with. So that's what happens. But no, honestly, these detectives, they're convinced that the person is guilty and they're, you know, think that they're trying to do a good job based on the training that they receive. They think they're actually doing good police work, but they are really not. So what would be your advice to someone who gets stuck in one of these situations, who is being interrogated, they're innocent, the police think they're guilty of it. What's the right thing to do at that point in order to prevent yourself from being cursed into a uh, false confession? Well, that's where those Miranda rights come in. But we are really, really good at getting people to waive their Miranda rights. We are good at doing workarounds. Honestly, if it was my family member, so I would tell this to anybody, if you're being interviewed and suddenly it becomes accusatory, if there's any hint whatsoever that they're looking at you or they're questioning your account, you should get a lawyer right away, clam up. But the thing about it is, is that, you know, most people don't want to do that because they think that getting a lawyer just makes them look more guilty. And yeah, the cops will think that. But you know what? The real danger is staying in that situation, trying to convince them 
that you're not guilty and is digging a hole deeper and deeper and deeper for yourself. I'm sure it can make them seem more guilty. That's a fear, but also having to pay for a lawyer. I mean, well, yeah. And that's a huge problem in and of itself is the cost of lawyers. For people who can't afford a lawyer, we're supposed to appoint one. But there's a lot of places. And D.C. has the best public defender office in the entire country, I believe. These people are, you know, are well-trained. They're dedicated. They have a lot of resources. But you go to some jurisdictions and you can't get a court-appointed lawyer, you know, no matter how bad off you are. Because or you get one and they got like a thousand other cases. So that's a real problem here in this country. Just not enough lawyers that are available for people who need them, especially indigent people who can't afford them. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And and probably an aspect of that is I talk about a lot on this show. This is a, a libertarian show. A lot of those resources are going towards the drug war, towards fighting the drug war and lawyers being channeled to defending people who are we're being locked up for a lot of nonviolent crimes, and um, it, it clogs up the system. And I'll be honest with you. I've said this often. I am so glad that, yes, I did enforce the drug laws when I worked as a police officer, but it wasn't my primary focus. I know guys that have spent their entire career working in a drug unit. And to kind of think that if I had done that, that 20 years, 50 years, 100 years from now, they would look back at the work I was doing and just think about how ridiculous it was. <laughs> yeah. So like even marijuana laws right now, DC now marijuana is you know, pretty much legal, but there's still people sitting in jail for something that is now legal. Right. Yeah. It's a pretty crazy thing to wrap your mind around. Let's move on and start to talk about maybe some ways that this could be reduced, improved. So there's less and less false confessions. Maybe someday to get to a point where we have a system in place where there are no false <laughs> confessions. I don't know if that's even possible. What are some things that you would lay out in, if, if you had you know, control over the justice system, what are some things that you would recommend implementing? Well, first thing is mandatory videotaping of all interviews and interrogations. And the reason I'm saying interviews is because a lot of times some jurisdictions have rules where they mandate only custodial interrogations. Well, we get around that by inviting the person to come in to talk to us. Therefore, they're not in custody. Therefore, we don't have to videotape it and we still get confessions. But no, mandatory videotaping. The problem with videotaping, though, is it doesn't prevent false confessions. All it does is it gives you a tool in order to be able to evaluate the confession evidence. Second is the interrogation schools right now, uh, the Reed School in particular, they've actually come around a lot over the last 10, 20 years, where before they fought videotaping, they were adamant in saying that false confessions pretty much didn't happen. But because of the DNA exonerations, they've become much more enlightened. And they have a large part of their textbook devoted to the causes of false confessions, things you should avoid, and how to evaluate confession evidence for its reliability. The problem is it doesn't make it into the classroom. It is not taught in the classroom. And in fact, when they do teach classes, they still poo-poo the idea of false confessions. And it's really doing a disservice to the people who take those classes. So we're not going to be getting rid of 
these interrogation techniques anytime soon. I know that. But we need to teach classes that supplement those interrogation classes to talk about the causes of false confessions, you know, things that you shouldn't do, the red flags, and especially how to avoid contamination and how to corroborate confession evidence. They require that confessions be corroborated because what happens too often is the cop gets the confession, uh, the case is over, no more work is done, when a ton more needs to be done. In fact, that's the only way I discovered that my confession was false, was by doing the follow-up work. The third thing is also judges and prosecutors need to be trained in this stuff as well. The third thing is, is right now, if you have a confession and the attorney wants to try to get it suppressed, all they can really deal with is whether or not it was voluntary. Uh, they can't deal with the reliability issue. And so the judges pretty much, when they rule that a confession is admissible, they're just saying that it's voluntary. And the voluntary standard is very, very low. In a lot of places, if you're stupid enough to waive your Miranda rights, even though you really don't understand them, even though the cop read them really, really quick and said, oh, no, this is just like on TV. If you waive your Miranda rights, they can almost put pins under your fingernails and that judge is going to let it in because he waived your Miranda rights. I think there needs, to, just like with eyewitness identification hearings, the judge will have a hearing on the reliability of the eyewitness identification. We need to do that for confessions as well, because if the confession is unreliable because of contamination, then it should not go before the jury, you know, because once it gets before the jury, it's an uphill battle to, you know, fight it. But it should not go before the jury. You mentioned a couple of times there, uh, contamination. Could you just explain what you mean by that? Sure. That's what I was talking about when the detective unintentionally gives details of the case to the suspect and the suspect repeats them back. It's like when I break down a interrogation, what I'll do is I'll make like just a spreadsheet of the information because I'm looking at, okay, the victim was stabbed three times in the chest. That's information that should only be known to the suspect. And if in their confession, the suspect says, I stabbed the victim three times in the chest, then that's something that increases the reliability of the confession. However, if you're looking at the interrogation and the detective is saying, look, we know you stabbed him, right? We know you stabbed him, and you stabbed him three times, didn't you? Yeah, I stabbed him three times. Well, that negates the reliability of the suspect saying that he stabbed it, because where did it come from? If you remember, I'm sure that most of your listeners watched uh, Let's See Making a Murderer, where they had Brendan's confession, where the cop is basically asking him, okay, what happened to her head? What did you do to her head? And he's guessing. And he's giving all these guesses, and the cop comes out and says, I'll just come right out and tell you, you shot her, didn't you? And that's contamination. And actually, I've seen good confessions screwed up because the cop gave too much information. If that's brought out in court, if it's recorded, then that should invalidate the confession? It should. However, since a lot of jurors still think, well, I would never confess, so you know, why would he you know, falsely confess to a crime, it's still a hard battle to get over. 
that's a really good point with your book and hopefully with my show with this podcast. It's just getting the word out there. There's a lot of people who listen to this show, and I'm sure a lot more will, will read your book. A lot of those people will serve on juries. So yeah. very important to educate the public. Well, one of the things that I try to do is say, this is the way cops are supposed to do this. So learn this stuff. And you can use what I'm talking about in the book when you're watching true crime TV shows, when you're watching uh, videotapes on YouTube. Do that. Take what I talk about in the book and apply it in those situations. And if you're sitting on a jury, apply it because the cops should have done that beforehand. It's basic investigation, ABC. But I did want to get on to one further reform. And that's something that's beginning to take hold a little bit in this country slowly. And that's what they're doing in uh, the UK. Back in the 70s and 80s, the UK had a series of high profile wrongful convictions where they were the result of false confessions. And so unlike in this country, they actually began to study these cases. And what they found out was that the detectives over there were using the same interrogation tactics that we use here. And they thought that they were pretty bad. And so they pretty much outlawed just about everything that we can do in an interrogation room here is considered to be a human rights violation in the UK. We can't talk about it, about, you know, threatening people with inevitable consequences. We can't lie about evidence. All of that is outlawed. Instead, they came up with a different uh, process. It's called PEACE, or investigative interviewing. PEACE is just an acronym for the different stages. But they go, undergo like 10 times the training that we do, and they become expert interviewers. And their goal is not to get a confession, but their goal is to go into that interrogation room and get information. And they're taught how to ask questions so that it, one, extracts the maximum amount of information with the minimum amount of contamination. And two, they're taught how to challenge a person with the evidence of the case in such a way that it's really non-accusatory and it's um, designed to kind of block them in. I'm not explaining it very well, but what I've done first is I've gotten their entire account of what I need before I bring out my evidence. And so... I can't be accused of contaminating them because I've already gotten the account that they provided up front. But it's really a good system, and it's extremely successful because even if you don't confess, what I have is a bunch of information that I can now go out and check. And if you lie to me, a lie is as good as a confession in a lot of cases. Yeah, that, that would make sense. I mean, especially in today's society where everything is driven by the more information you can get. I mean, it makes sense when investigating a crime, just, you know, that's the a suspect who you think is responsible for that crime. They're going to have all the information. So plus it's much more civilized. Oh, absolutely. It is. I mean, you're treating people with respect. And one of the things that they emphasize over there is, you know, this person may be your suspect today, but he could be your witness tomorrow and he could be on the jury the next day. <laughs> you know, so they emphasize that where here the leading interrogation schools will admit in their textbooks that the techniques that are used in the interrogation room would be considered unethical if they were in normal, you know, day-to-day -day interchanges with people. However, 
we need to use them in the interrogation role because, as they say, we are dealing with people on a lower moral plane, which to me is outrageous. I mean, what that does is it justifies what's called noble cause corruption, cops doing things, wrong things for the, what they think are the right reasons. You know, just because a person is a suspect doesn't make them, you know, less of a human being than you are. And, you know, just because you think they're a suspect doesn't mean that they are. So, yeah, it, innocent until proven guilty, innocent until proven guilty. And the thing about it is you go and you treat somebody like we treat people in the interrogation room or as witnesses. And that mushrooms out. People remember that they tell their family members that and it just increases the level of distrust that people have in the investigative process. A lot of the times with uh, foreign policy, we'll talk about the blowback of uh, United States military actions abroad and causing people to resent the U.S. That's where terrorism comes from. Of course, that happens on a domestic scale with things like this. If you have investigators, police officers out there being forceful and interrogating people that are innocent, yeah, there's going to be blowback. Well, even if you're interrogating somebody who's guilty, like I said, if you use certain techniques that are, you know, just inappropriate, that has its own blowback as well. That's why, like I said, it, in the UK, that they really stress respect for the person and in the process. But it's funny because I worked with an FBI agent for many, many years, and we would spend a lot of time with witnesses or with suspects, with anybody, just talking with them and building that rapport up before we even got into the questioning part. And he would always comment, you know, it seems like every time we have an interaction with somebody, we have to spend at least 30 to 45 minutes getting over the crap that some other officer did to them in the past. So, you know, these little things, if somebody, you know, treats somebody unfairly in this situation, it carries on. And, uh, you know, somebody else is going to have to pay for it down the road. That's a great point. Not everything's isolated. You know, things will ripple out. There's definitely a ripple effect. You know, this has been a great conversation. I've learned a lot, and I, I learned a lot reading your book as well. I want to encourage my listeners to check it out. The title of the book is How the Police Generate False Confessions, an inside look at the interrogation room. I will link to that on the show notes page. James, I want to thank you for coming on. I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about anything else you're working on or let the uh, Felony Friday audience know how they can get in touch with you or follow you on social media or anything like that? Sure. I'm on LinkedIn. I really don't have any, going to do much with Facebook. My email address, if anybody wants to reach out, is james.trainum, spelled T as in Tom, R-A-I-N-U-M, at yahoo.com. Something else that I recommend that people look into is a really new thing that law enforcement is trying to develop. It's called Sentinel Event Reviews. If you look up on Google Sentinel Event Reviews and NIJ for the National Institute of Justice, you'll get a lot of information. But what we're trying to do is look at investigative failures like wrongful convictions, uh, cold cases, even things like police shootings and all that from a big lens type approach. And rather than focus in on the bad apple, you know, we're trying to see, okay, well, what made that bad apple the bad apple? 
what made them think that that was a good decision at the time and really come up with ways to identify systemic problems, not only within individuals, but within organizations. And medicine's been doing it for years. Uh, the aviation field's been doing it for years. And it's about time we start doing it in the law enforcement field because I think that way we're really going to learn a lot and uh, about how the organization and the way that it's structured and the pressures that it puts on people, training, supervision, tunnel vision, how all these things play a part. And I think that if it's done right and it catches on, we're going to take major steps in improving law enforcement here in the country. Yeah, it definitely seems like a way to strike at the root of the problem for sure. Yeah. James, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. I do appreciate it. Just a few notes to wrap up the show today. I'll try to be as brief as possible because this show ran a little bit longer than our standard Felony Friday shows. And honestly, it was kind of hard to stop talking to James Trainum. He's a very interesting guy, and he's very open to talk about his past, his history working as a homicide detective and his vast experience uh, with false confessions. It is so incredibly important to continue to talk about false confessions, to continue to talk about this injustice that just does not get any sort of play in the mainstream media. I was so happy to have someone of the caliber of James Trainum to come on this show to talk about his book. And his book is incredible. It is just full of studies of different cases analysis on cases, talking through the details, talking through the interrogation strategies, talking about the history of false confessions. It's an incredible read. And it's organized in a way that you could even jump around if you want to. And I will link to it in the show notes. I want to really encourage everyone to pick it up. And it is so important to talk about false confessions. I just want to stress that one more time. James talked about it during the show when he talked about a lot of people on juries a false confession can be proven to be invalid, and still the people on the jury, they have a hard time getting past that. And that is why, you know, often a false confession will be proven to be invalid. And this individual, this innocent man who has spent time in jail, will continue to stay in jail because the jury just can't get past the fact that this person's false confession was either coerced or uh, is invalid for some other reason. So it's so important to educate people, and it's so important to have educated juries and educated populace in this country to understand that false confessions do happen, and they happen a heck of a lot more often than people want to admit. Just a couple more quick notes. I want to encourage everyone to subscribe to the Lions of Liberty podcast on iTunes, or if you don't have iTunes through your favorite podcasting app, Stitcher is another one. If you do this, if you subscribe, this will guarantee that you will not miss an episode of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Now, we do have a bit of a variety show here at Lions of Liberty. Mark Clare, one of the other co-founders of Lions of Liberty, he continues to just knock the ball out of the park and bring in the best and brightest names in the Liberty Movement for interviews each and every single week. We also have roundtable discussion shows for each of the presidential debate shows. We had a roundtable discussion after each one of those, and we'll continue to do that going forward, even with the debates and the election obviously being over. And we also have different formats of shows. We had Mr. Johnson's Liberty Hood, where Brian McWilliams went through and reviewed the campaign of Gary Johnson and graded that on a uh, Johnson, Johnson off scale. 
We're going to have shows like that coming up. We're going to have more to talk about. And I think we do have some exciting new things that we're going to introduce next year. So you want to stay tuned for that. And a good way to plug into that, so you're the first to hear about that, our new announcements next year, you want to become a member of our Lions of Liberty Forum. If you aren't a member, you're missing out in so many ways. The Lions of Liberty Forum on Facebook, it's the home to some of the most interesting and civilized discussion about liberty on the interweb. Now, you can become a member of the Lions of Liberty Forum just by going on Facebook, typing in the search bar at the top, Lions of Liberty Forum. It'll pop up and we will get you approved to join. That's all I have for the show today, guys. As always, thank you for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.